Okay, friends, let's read the word of the Lord together. We're going to be in the book of Job. We're going to be in chapter 28. And today our reading will start in verse 12 and we'll go all the way through to verse 28. So Job chapter 28, verses 12 through 28. But where can wisdom be found, and where is understanding located? No one can know its value, since it cannot be found in the land of the living. The ocean depths say, it is not in me, while the sea declares, I don't have it. Gold cannot be exchanged for it, and silver cannot be weighed out for its price. Wisdom cannot be valued for the gold of Ophir and the precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Gold and glass do not compare with it, and articles of fine gold cannot be exchanged for it. Coral and quartz are not worth mentioning. The price of wisdom is beyond pearls. Topaz and cush cannot compare with it, and it cannot be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from, and where is understanding located? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, we have heard news of it in our ears, but God understands the way to wisdom and he knows its location. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When God fixed the weight of the wind and distributed the water by measure, when he established a limit for the rain and a path for the lightning, he considered wisdom and evaluated it. He established it and examined it. He said to mankind, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn from evil is understanding. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Natalie. Do you want it? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Good morning. My name is Ryan, and I am one of the pastors here. I have been um, quite blessed by this series this summer sitting under God's word, uh, reflecting on the many different facets of biblical wisdom. You know, we've uh, started with Proverbs. That's a good place to start when it comes to wisdom literature. It's kind of the, the most general kind of baseline wisdom establishes the rules that most of the other wisdom books have to end up playing by in some sense. So we picked up Ecclesiastes a few weeks ago. I don't know if you were surprised that James has some wisdom elements in it as a New Testament book, and then even the Beatitudes last week. And today we're in Job, as Natalie read, and Job is the third of one of the the classic three Old Testament wisdom books. Proverbs tells you what it looks like to live the good life under God's providence and care, and Ecclesiastes assures you that your efforts won't amount to much satisfaction if they're not rooted in the Lord, Job answers the question, or at least asks the question, so what if the formula doesn't work? Most of us are familiar with the broad strokes of Job's story. Job is a righteous man. It says as much. God calls him righteous. The devil recognizes him as a righteous man. I know we're conditioned to, to say righteousness is not something that humanity can possess innately and in and of themselves, but we're not talking about salvific righteousness here. We're talking about a righteousness that is someone who is clearly devoted to the Lord and lives their life according to that devotion. Noah is likewise described as righteous. 
You could even say, in a sense, David, for all of his shortcomings, when you call him a man after God's own heart, that's a, that's a claim to righteousness. Job's a righteous man. And Satan strolls into God's throne room in the early part of Job, chapters 1 and 2. Says, I think, I think Job does this because you've blessed him. I don't think he really loves you. I think he loves what he gets from you, God. Job was a man of incredible wealth. The early parts of the book tell us how many head of cattle he had. He had children. He had, he had like the complete life. He was a man of incredible means. And it looks like the Lord has indeed blessed him beyond all measure. And so Satan makes a wager with the Lord. We'll see if, we, if, if, if his, his blessings are stripped away. Will he remain faithful? Is his, is his fidelity to you truly um, for the sake of the Lord or is it because of what he gets from the Lord? And that's what happens. Um, in a strange way, God permits Satan to dismantle Job's life but to spare his physical life. But then in the telling of how it happens, it looks like God is the one doing the dismantling. And then you have... For the first 27 chapters, these dialogues of Job and his friends. And his friends actually don't sound like they're far off from the truth. Their, their concern is that at the core, Job's righteousness is probably what's in question. If the blessings have been pulled, it's because the righteousness is now faulty. And Job maintains his innocence. And so it's this, this pooled effort to discern some degree of wisdom out of Job's situation and the the result is that it just ends up being folly. They don't stumble upon wisdom, wise though they may sound at times. And in chapter 28, the narrator steps in and gives us this little bridge. In fact, I think even helping us see how the book itself will resolve. So we're going to do Job for the next two weeks. Today we're going to do 28, and next week we'll do the, the conclusion of the book, 38 and on. And in 28, you get hints from the narrator as to how God is going to resolve this, although you'll see. Answers are rarely given in Job. Job's questions are not answered. So as we move into 28, I want to tell you a story about a man named Mike. Mike is a, an unassuming man, I would guess in his late 60s. I met him last week, a number of us did. Five of us went to, um, to this wilderness, this Christian retreat center. Um, not necessarily to retreat, but to do some improvement projects on the property. And one of the projects that we had on our, on our list was to go, so this retreat center is in northwest Montana, way up in the mountains, and it's off the valley floor, there's a dirt road that goes four miles up the mountain to the cabins. And we were staying at this cabin, and then there was a cabin on the adjacent plot, and we were going to help him repair some bridges on that dirt road. They're just wood planked bridges, very thick wood planks, but where creeks could run under, and the, the boards had become rotten and needed to be replaced. So we're going to go down and help this guy. So our host drives us over to Mike's cabin. Mike is an unassuming-looking person. He gets out of a very normal truck, wearing a normal work shirt, and jeans, and he's just a guy who has lived in the mountains of Montana since the early 70s when he bought that plot of land at the age of 19 
and has been kind of slowly working on his property and his cabins ever since. So we're gonna go help Mike. So we're down at the first bridge, prying up the old boards and putting in the new ones. And Kyle Butler asks the classic Montana question. You ever run into grizzlies much? Which, to me, sounds like a profound question. To people in Northwest Montana, that sounds like asking someone from Oklahoma if you've ever seen a deer cross a road. <laughs> He's like, oh yeah, quite a few. And he said, I got within 12 inches of one once, and we all just stopped working. Like, that story has to be finished, Mike, before, before we go any further. And he's, and he's like a guy that can spin a yarn. So I'm assuming most of it was true, but he's got, he's got some storytelling skills. So Mike, before he was married, he would lead um, excursions up into the Bob Marshall Wilderness. So this is about a, this is more than like a million square, there's like a million acres actually of just untouched wilderness. Massive peaks, there's no roads, it's illegal to build roads in there. You have to cut your own trail with pack animals if you want one. And he would lead camping trips and fishing trips up into these mountains every summer as a 19, 20, 21 year old. And then in the fall, he would lead hunting expeditions up. They'd bring horses and mules up and he would lead um, hunting trips up there. And then when the fall started to go by and the snow started to come in and the passes started to become impassable, they would have to send all the people and the pack animals back down the mountain. Mike chose to stay. And that was his thing, is he would stay and he would camp up there all winter long and he would just trap and hunt and be by himself for about four months before he could come back out of the Bob Marshall wilderness. And he's telling us this story, he's got these trap lines running, he's, he's caught this beaver, and it, it's sunset. He's like running out of light. So he's not, he's not gonna be able to, to skin it out until the next day, so he puts it in his tent so it won't freeze overnight. And then right outside his tent, he's got these lodge poles going from tree to tree on which he has hung an elk that he's killed. And that's going to be his, his food for quite a while. So that night, Mike wakes up to the unmistakable sound of a grizzly bear getting that elk carcass. Again, this is his food, so it's game on. So Mike gets his flashlight and his rifle, and he's about to go out and deal with this problem, flicks the flashlight on, that beaver is not in the tent anymore. The bear had come in the tent with Mike while he was sleeping, stolen his beaver, <laughs> and then was going out to steal the rest of the food. So then, now it's getting personal. So Mike is chasing <laughs> this animal down the mountain, and then he sets, a, he sets a trap for this bear. He takes one elk quarter, like a skinned out elk leg, and he finds this forestry supply station out in the middle of some plain somewhere, breaks in, hangs the elk quarter from the eave of the roof, and then he has a little pack of bacon just to make it really extra tempting. And he tucks that in on top of the windowsill and waits for the bear. He's like, surely this grizzly will come, get this elk quarter, get this bacon. He can smell it for miles, I'm sure. So he breaks in, moves the bunk bed right in front of the window, opens the glass to the window, has his rifle resting on the bunk bed and his flashlight, and he waits for the bear. When Mike wakes up, <laughs> he fell asleep again, he... Um, that window's blacked out. The grizzly's standing up, getting the bacon. So anyway, he doesn't end up killing this grizzly. This grizzly outsmarted him left, right, and center. But that was just story number one. 
And there was like story number two. I got lost in a blizzard once and I had two beavers that I had trapped and I had to go swimming in some ice water so I had to make a fire on the bank just so I didn't die of hypothermia. But then I have these two beavers and I can't find my way back to a camp. So I start listening to this owl hooting and I follow it for about four or five miles and I finally find my camp. And we're just like, okay, I guess we'll build the bridge now, Mike. You just keep <laughs> the stories... And he says them in the most nonchalant way. He's not impressed with himself at all. But we just had so many conversations the rest of the week. Like, I think he's more man than all five of us combined, clearly. Um, But he's just one of those guys that you would just pass him walking down the road and not think anything about it, but he's just full of this practical wisdom. We asked him if he'd seen the show alone. He said, I don't watch much TV. I think he's just busy living alone. And... (laughs) He's not impressed with himself, although for us, he had this incredible capacity to do amazing things. And I think that that's one kind of wisdom, a wisdom that's more like um, know-how. And I do think that God gives that to you as a gift. We even talked to him about that. He's not a believer, but I do think that know-how, an ability to survive in a very hostile place is a gift that God has given him. He's spiritual, as many people are in very beautiful parts of the world, but he's not a believer in Jesus whatsoever, and he, but he has this incredible know-how. And it just struck me how similar Mike is to the first 11 verses of Job 28. I didn't have Natalie read that. The first 11 verses of Job 28 dote on human ingenuity and cleverness. Listen to this. It says, surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the ground and copper is smelted from ore. A miner puts an end to the darkness. He subdues the darkness. You get a sense in this entire, these first 11 verses that there's this fill the earth and subdue it-ness from Genesis 1. That's, it's, the, the, this hymn to wisdom begins by just lavishing praise on the abilities that humanity seems to have to subdue creation. It says he probes the deepest recesses for ore in the gloomy darkness. He cuts a shaft far from human habitation in places unknown to those who walk above ground. Suspended far away from people, the miners swing back and forth. Food may come from the earth, but below the surface, the earth is transformed as by fire. Its rocks are a source of lapis lazuli containing flecks of gold. No bird of prey knows that path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts have never walked on it, and no lion has ever prowled over it. Now, we might just breeze past those few, little, those few sentences there, but it, it says the best, sharpest eyes in the world can't find this stuff. The most skilled hunters that prowl the earth cannot find this stuff. And yet, the miner uses a flint tool and turns up ore from the root of the mountains. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eyes spot every treasure. He dams up the streams from flowing so that he may bring to light what is hidden. And it's like the writer of this hymn is, is begging us to, say, to, to conclude that part with, isn't humanity impressive? What If you can find this stuff, what couldn't humanity find? There's a lot of know-how here, a lot of practical wisdom. But as we turn into the middle section of this hymn, we come face-to-face with the truth that 
our know-how just isn't enough. Human ingenuity is not enough. I mean, how often could we look back across human history and see progress and development and advancement of human abilities and realize that it just doesn't fix it? Sure, it can provide some temporary relief or some sort of blessing or gift, but in the end, there's something that our, our cleverness cannot grasp. Because verse 12 says, asking the question, where can wisdom be found? And where is understanding located? No one can know its value, since it cannot be found in the land of the living. Notice the contrast between that and the miners. Can't find it. It is unfindable. So, while know-how is a certain sort of practical wisdom, and even the Proverbs speak of that frequently, it simply isn't enough, and there appears to be something even more impressive than what our own ingenuity can discover, something hidden to all but God himself. Because God alone knows wisdom's location and its value. Verse 25, when God fixed the weight of the wind and distributed the water by measure, when he established a limit for the rain and a path for the lightning, he considered wisdom and evaluated it. He established it and examined it. God does not play by wisdom's rules. God makes it. It is his, it is at his disposal. And in that sense, that's why I think I can tell someone like Mike, you have a degree of God-given wisdom that is very useful. And I truly believe a gift, but it comes with so many limitations. There's something bigger and better and deeper. So how do we, if this wisdom is hidden in God, as Natalie read, how do we, people who have a, a clever side or an ability to problem solve, and in that sense, some sort of practical wisdom, how do we get to the hidden wisdom? Is it even accessible to us? The hymn ends in verse 28. God says to mankind, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn from evil is understanding. Job is never told why he suffers. So wisdom, I'm often left describing wisdom as an ability to explain things well. An ability to discern a situation and to perceive it with accuracy and to maybe help others to do so. In my mind, that is wisdom. But here it's fearing God and obeying him not knowing the answers, fearing him and obeying him, without explanation, which for all the chapters of Job, they were trying to give an answer why. And God never tells them why, he just reminds them that he's worth trusting. 
One of my favorite Old Testament guys is a guy named John Walton. He does a lot of work in the wisdom books and in Genesis. This is his understanding of what this fear of the Lord that is connected to obedience and how that manifests in wisdom. This is how he describes it. He says, it requires that we believe that God has set up and sustains the cosmos in wisdom, even if we cannot receive an explanation that makes sense to us. It is wise for us to believe that he is wise. This becomes a matter of trust rather than understanding. You could write any book about discipleship, about following Jesus, and the subtitle should probably be, this becomes a matter of trust rather than understanding. Job doesn't ever get the answer he wants. And like I said, next week we'll deal with the conclusion of the book, but I I just want to share one little line from Job's concluding thoughts. As a man who, in terms of know-how, Job had it. He knew agriculture. He grew his, his, his livestock into incredible numbers. He raised his children into adulthood. He amassed incredible wealth. If you were Job's neighbor, you would ask him how to do life. How do I, you've clearly figured it out, Job. Tell me how to become wise like you. And in the end, in chapter 40, God speaks to Job. He says, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. If you struggle with the concept of what it means to fear the Lord, let him ask you that question. That is God saying, if you think you know, speak up. And Job, the guy who lives down in the cul-de-sac that you go and ask every little question that you need to know an answer to, the one that would help you grow your 401k, the one that would help you parent your kids through their teenage years, the one that would help you do life well, says this, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not reply. Twice, but now I can add nothing. He's been reduced to recognizing that wisdom is fearing the Lord and trusting him when I don't get the answers I want. Now, if we just stayed with Job 28, I think we could draw out some principles of when things don't go well, trust the Lord. When, when times are hard, trust the Lord. And in all things, recognize that we are finite beings that can only comprehend so much. So in the end, we need to know that Lord knows more than us, and we need to follow him, and we need to fear him and obey him. We can do all of that from Job 28. But here's what, here's what the gospel brings in. If Job 28 offers up this picture of God as the only one who knows wisdom's location and its value, the gospel comes in and offers us access to that hidden wisdom, to that mysterious wisdom. Again, not full comprehension, but access. Here's the thing, too. As we're sharing with Mike snippets of our love for Jesus, just 
looking for angles to possibly engage him in gospel conversations. He's a kind man, so he's not dismissive, but he's most certainly not interested. And I just realized, like, he's even trying to figure out why five guys from Oklahoma would spend money out of their own pockets to come help him build bridges that are 200 yards from his house. Why we would invite him to dinner for no other reason than to just sit with him. You could tell he was a little standoffish, he was a little nervous. I think the gospel looks a little weird to most. And in that sense, I think this heavenly wisdom that we've been given access to, it may at times appear kind of silly or dumb. Or the Bible likes to use the word foolish. Imagine if you were to like just go and tell people about Jesus, but you had no relationship with them, no established like connection between one another. You just said, okay, I, I follow this first century Jewish man who was uh, alive and then he was dead and now he's alive. Um, and it really, I, I base everything on that. So, are you in? It just sounds stupid. Paul knew that and he was trying to impress that idea on the church in Corinth. And he starts to talk about what does the cross look like to those that are not among us? What does following Jesus look like to the people of Corinth that have not bent the knee to Jesus? He says this. He says, the word of the cross, this is 1 Corinthians 1, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Anybody had an evangelism conversation that just went south? Most of mine, by the way. But it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the wisdom described back there in Job 28, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. Paul shows up with a strange message. And for some, it was the words of life. But for most, it just sounded dumb. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. It's such a bizarre message. And I am eternally grateful that for some reason, in the fall of 2005, God gave me the eyes and the, the eyes to see and the ears to hear that it's not foolish. When just days before, I would have said, everything in here is just dumb. (laughs) 
heavenly wisdom can't appear dumb. And then if you can get over that hurdle, good news, the Spirit's work in you can also appear pretty dumb. Have you ever wondered what our sanctification looks like to those outside the church? We look so strange. I listen to worship songs that I would have made fun of 20 years ago. I cry in public now. That's new. Um, I'm more patient and gentle with the flaws of others than I used to be. The process of sanctification does not make you more impressive to the world. By all accounts, I would imagine to most who do not follow Jesus, I look like I've become a weak shell of a former self. That's how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. In a city known for its orators, its public debaters, its poets, the silver-tongued people who could convince you of anything by sheer virtue of sounding good. Paul came in bumbling and stumbling through a silly gospel. He said, I decided instead to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. None of those three things would have been virtues in Corinth. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Okay. So that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. It can be difficult at times to remember verse 6, that all the brilliance that this earth has to offer has such short shelf life that there's a deeper, more divine wisdom that runs in perpetuity, in eternity past and eternity forward. But in the meantime, it just looks silly. On the contrary, we speak of God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. That just sounds like Job 28 saying, even the eagles of the sky can't find this stuff. The best predatory hunters can't find this stuff. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has conceived. But God has prepared these things for those who loved him. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit. Since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Just overlay the mining motif of Job 28 and the human ingenuity that can get there but cannot get to the depths of God, and then hear the Spirit 
getting all the way down into the depths of God. And then Paul talks about it as something that empowers us, that takes up residence in us. This hidden wisdom is available for us. For who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Only God knows where wisdom is, and the spirit knows God's thoughts. So while heavenly wisdom, encapsulated mostly in this text, while it can look dumb and foolish, and the Spirit's power working in us can make us just appear foolish to a lost and dying world, in the end, our access to this hidden wisdom in God is, is through Christ. And so becoming like Jesus is the wisest thing we can do. Here's how Paul concludes that little section in 1 Corinthians. He says, Now we've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, no, no, but in those taught by the spirit explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. I'll pause right there just to say that verse 13 has um, alleviated so much anxiety in my life over uh, this, this need I feel to convince people to love Jesus. I just, half the time I realize I'm not speaking to a spiritual person. Spiritual people understand spiritual truths. And so until the Lord transforms your heart, I cannot logic you into the kingdom. Apologetics have their value, but I can't apologize someone into the kingdom lest the spirit work on their heart. Spiritual truths for spiritual people, the wisdom of God is not, it's hidden unless you're his. It's hidden unless you fear him and obey him. And then suddenly we have access to it. Verse 14, but the person without the spirit does not receive what comes from God's spirit because it's foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? But, and this verse is so beautiful, but we have the mind of Christ. As we are transformed into greater and greater degrees of Christ's likeness, what once appeared foolish to us now becomes God's wisdom available to us. Paul applies this truth in a different church, in the church of Colossae. He says this just briefly, and it's beautiful. He says, I want their hearts, speaking of a faction in the church, to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, we will not find complete comprehension, understanding, and explanation. But we will find wisdom. And the application of that wisdom is to trust him, to fear him and obey him, as Job 28, 28 
tells us. And I just love this little line from Walton that I think this is good for us to conclude with. It is wise for us to believe that he is wise. We had to leave yesterday our cabin um, 3.30 in the morning to get to the airport in time to get home. So two-ish hours to the airport. We're going down this highway. It's pretty deserted at that time. Uh, We pass one car. Flashers are on. They're on the other side of the road. Roger, our host, just turns around. We're, we're, I think we're going to cut it close for this flight in the first place. He turns, leans around over his shoulder and says, you guys mind if we stop? And we're like, I don't feel like that was a question, Roger. I feel like you were kindly telling us what you're about to do. <laughs> and so he stops. We turn around. We go. He pulls up, and then he rolls down the window and says, What's the problem? They have a flat tire. For whatever reason, on this vehicle, the spare tire takes different lug nuts. And for whatever reason, the owner of this vehicle took them out of the car at some point. So they were back at his house, 25 miles away. So, again, I feel like we're going to cut it close for the flight. Roger's like, get in. So we squeeze four deep in the back. Scott and I have never been this close. And uh, we take this guy. And it was more or less on the way to the airport. So it really wasn't, you know, a big deal. We drove him to his house. There's a practical know-how that says, I'm going to both do the kind thing for this person and get these boys to the airport on time. I can do both. There's a practical know-how that can pull that off, and Roger did. This guy, clearly not a believer, based on what he, kind of how he was talking on our short ride to his apartment, um, we get there, we drop him off, and Roger leans over his shoulder and says, bless you, I'll be praying for you. And the guy kind of chuckled. Again, not a believer. And what Roger's, like his initiation to offer a blessing to a man who needed help and he doesn't know, and to say, I'll pray for you, and I've only known Roger for about a week now, I believe he has probably prayed for that man. That was, that was not empty sentiment. It sounded like foolishness to this man getting out of the car. But it was the wisdom of God overflowing from Roger to say, I'm going to inconvenience myself and my friends for you. I don't know you. And I'm going to truly say, bless you, brother. I will pray for you. I hope things work out. It was wisdom and folly happening in the same vehicle at the same time. And I suppose all of it depends on whether or not you're in a position where you fear God and do what he says. If you do, as Roger does, you have access to this eternal divine wisdom that is just so beautiful. But to this guy who just needed a new tire, seemed like folly. So if you grab your cup, To a world that does not know God, certainly doesn't fear him, that doesn't follow him in obedience, this meal seems so dumb. 
It's empty ritual. It's glorying in the death of someone, the excruciating torture and execution of someone from 2,000 years ago. It's a dumb meal. Why do you guys do this? And for us, it's like the apex of weekly worship. So when Jesus institutes this meal, it's, it's like the one who is the very wisdom of God himself is sharing himself with those who fear him and obey him. He's sharing the wisdom of God with us. And to a broken world, this looks like utter foolishness. So as those with access to the one who is truly wise, we remember how much he loved us. And we eat the body given for us. And we drink the blood poured out for our sins.